Well, hey, good morning and welcome. My name is Jared and I'm excited to teach today. Today we're talking about our series, Advice for Life, and we are talking about family. We're talking about specifically parenting. Um, And you look at me and you go, okay, how long could this guy have been a parent? Half a decade. I'm getting there, okay? Uh, My five-year-old will turn six in October, but I have been a child of my parents my entire life, okay? There's my cheesy joke for the morning. We'll get that over with and move on. But when we talk family, it is so easy to disconnect early on, especially when you're like, okay, this is a parenting message. Maybe you don't have kids. You're a college student. You're a high schooler. There, we, this is our kids Sunday. We have family worship Sunday. Any kids in the room? They're here, but they're quiet. Okay. Good to see you all. Um, maybe you're, you're an adolescent, you don't have kids, you're in youth. Um, maybe you have kids that you have graduated and they are out of your home and praise the Lord that that is the case for you. Um, maybe you never had kids and this is not a thing for you. Well, we're all called to be a part of the family of God. So I do think that it is something for us and it is, family is always one of those kind of prickly things. Family is one of those things that everybody has some pain involved in it. Everybody has some pride involved with it and some pain, some difficulty and some goodness. And uh, family's not easy. Family's one of those things that if you think about a certain side of them, you're gonna get angry. If you think about another side of them, you can be proud. Maybe there's not a side that you can, you can claim either on, but um, we all, what we can agree on is that we have an opportunity. Whether you have kids, whether you don't have kids, whether you're never gonna have kids, or you're in the throes of parenting like I am, you have an opportunity. Um, I'm the youngest of four. Uh, I have three older siblings, and it was probably 2002. Um, I was 10 or 12 years old, and I remember uh, my family rented from Blockbuster the movie The Truman Show. Uh, If you don't know what The Truman Show is, it's a Jim Carrey movie, and uh, he plays uh, the main character named Truman. And Truman, from the time he was born, uh, was living in kind of this bubble, this dome, and he didn't know it, but there were cameras all over, and his life was broadcast to the world 24-7 outside of that dome, outside of that bubble. Everyone he knew, whether it was his teacher, his best friend, his wife, his parents, were not actually his family, they were paid actors, okay? Okay. And it was wild because you kind of get to see him, like there's, there's pinhole cameras everywhere. And I remember there was one at like the center of a clock where the hands connected. Um, and then there was one like behind his mirror and you'd make funny faces and dance and do these funny things that only Jim Carrey can do. Um, and I remember watching the movie. And it was really, really interesting. At the end of the movie, he kind of comes to terms. He realizes these, he's in this situation. Um, hopefully I'm not ruining it for you. It's like 25 years old. Um, but he realizes it, breaks out with this whole thing. And the movie gets over and all three of my siblings turned towards me and they said, Jared, did you know that you are the main character in a show called The Jared Show? And I said, that's not true, hoping that it wasn't true. And I said, no, 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 no. Um, He would have figured it out or I would figure it out. And they said, he didn't figure it out. Okay, that's true, that's true, that's a little dangerous. And I I was thinking about it, panicking, okay, Mom and dad would tell me. They really love me. Mom and dad would tell me if this was the case. And they looked at me and they said, his mom and dad didn't tell him. And panic started to set in. And I started to think that I was, that there was probably like a 5% chance I thought this was real. Like not a great chance. But every time I would look at a clock and there was a center of it, I'd like try to look and see if there was actually like a little lens in there. And then I'd be like, I know that's not real. And then my family got a new clock and I was like, maybe it is. Um, 
but everybody has this situation where something can be changed in the way that you perceive life, the way that you perceive family. My family took advantage of that moment and told me I was at the center of the Jared show when I was not. But you can probably point to some pivotal moments of your, your perception of family, your perception of even God potentially has been shaped by your perception of family for better or for worse, that we all have an opportunity. And, and this is one of those times where we can either rise to the opportunity or squash it and say, no, I won't jump in. So today our verse is Proverbs 22, six, and this is probably a pretty familiar term, so don't check out, but this is a, a familiar proverb. It says, Proverbs 22, six, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. And Logan did a great job kicking this series off three weeks ago, and he talked about the difference between a principle and a promise. A promise says, if you do A plus B, you will get C. A principle says, this will happen most of the time. This will happen generally. If this is what you do, then this is what will happen probably. It's not a guarantee. This is one of those that is not a guarantee. It's arguing that if you train, that the child will not forget. It's not arguing that they have to. Everyone has this free will, but it says that they will not forget. So what we're doing here is we're setting off the opportunity to not forget. So what does the word train get after? We have to talk about that first. To train is to set off in the right direction. If you told me to start walking west and I turned around and started walking east, I would never get to my destination because I was set off in the wrong course. It's to aim, it's to point. It's the idea, the old, the old idiom of you can, you can teach, you can, you can lead a horse to water but you can't force it to drink. Um, it's a principle, it's, it's you can do the right thing and hope that the right thing happens. And the word train here is talking about um, in their day, they would have done to, to wean children off of, off of their mother's milk, they would make this paste. And they would like grind down dates and figs and they would make this paste and they'd start to put it on the inside of the child's lip and they would like it. They would like the sugary taste. And what they would do is they would take that paste then once they have the flavor for it, once they have the taste for it, and they would put it on something that's good. They would put it on some food that wasn't their mother's milk. And then they would see it, they would want it and they would end up eating it. So what we're doing is we're developing a taste for the things of God. We're developing a taste for the things that really matter, the things that you want your legacy to be, the things that you hope that your children, that your family, that the people around you will be and will be for. So let's talk about the first phrase in uh, Proverbs 22.6. It says, train up a child in the way they should go. So if train is setting the direction, if to train is to, to decide the point, if it's setting a taste for, what are we setting the taste for? What is it is the thing that matters the most? What is the way a child should go? We have to decide that before we train. This is the point. We have to train, we have to parent, we have to be the family member toward the end in mind. We have to train with the end in mind. Um, Proverbs 29, 18 says, where there is no vision, the people perish. But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. Now, I'm from St. Louis. When I moved to Springfield, one of the most confusing things in the world is this thing called a diverging diamond, where you hop on the wrong side of the highway, on the wrong side of the road, and then for a second, you're on the wrong side of the road, and then you jut back over it the last second and hope that everything goes well. Now, there is a plan to that, and they say it works well, 
But if you don't plan well, if you just kind of left the intersection open, you didn't turn any of the lights on, you didn't have any lines on the road, there's no plan there, there's no vision for how that intersection should be, I guarantee you people would die. It would not be a good situation. It wouldn't be good. Where there is not a plan, people will perish. And the same thing is true for families. If we don't have a plan, if we don't have a vision, if we don't have a hope for what our families can be, if there's not a legacy in mind, where are we going? To move aimlessly is easy, but to move with purpose is difficult, but it's worth it. It's costly, but it's worth it. So I wanna ask the question today, what are you moving towards? Like, what's the end goal? What, who do you want your child to be? Who do you want your family members to be? What do you hope that they become? What qualities, what characteristics Who are they? And I love that because it says train up a child. If you have multiple children, it doesn't just say, hey, train up your family in the way they should go. It says you take each individual child and you assess them. You look at them and you say, what are their qualities? I look at, I have three boys and they're all young. They're gonna be six, four, and two at the end of the summer. And I look at them and our six-year-old and our four-year-old are completely different. We can't even discipline them the same way. We don't even reward them the same way because they're so different. And he's saying here, you have to look at each individual child and say, hey, assess which way they should go based on their personality, based on their things. We're shaping that. We're shaping who they can be and developing a vision for what they can be. Um, One of my favorite uh, athletes is Michael Jordan. And I watched the Michael Jordan documentary that came out a year or two ago. And in it, uh, if you don't know about Michael Jordan, um, he was one of the greatest basketball players, if not the greatest to ever live. He won three championships uh, early in the 90s. He took a break and he played baseball and made it to like double A minor league baseball and then came back and won three more championships, six time champion, multiple MVPs, multiple all team, all defense, like incredible basketball player. But he took that break in between um, and played baseball for like a year, year and a half. And, and in that year, his Bulls team was not very good. They, they, they almost didn't miss the playoffs. And when he came back, he had one of the most timely, most incredible press releases of all time. He just said, it said from his, his agency, and it just said two words, I'm back. And when he came back, it was kind of a short notice thing. And when he came back, they had retired as number 23. So he wore his baseball number, number 45. And he was okay, he was good. He was averaging like almost 10 points less a game. And in the documentary that I watched, they said, hey, what, what was the deal? Why, did, why were you averaging less? And he said, I was in baseball shape. I wasn't in basketball shape. And I was like, what? that almost doesn't make any sense. Like you're a professional athlete. You are probably the greatest basketball player in the world. And he's saying, I'm not everything that I could have become because I trained for something else. And I think we look at our families and we go, we're just getting through the day. We look at our families and we go, man, I want the vacation. I want the finances. I want the perception of what this family is. And we accidentally, or sometimes on purpose, we train our families towards something that is not what's best. Michael Jordan was the best at basketball, but he trained towards something that wasn't best for him and wasn't best for everyone around him. And what's incredible is that when he trained for basketball, people could live in awe of him and the things that he could do. And sometimes I think people look at our lives and look at our families and they wonder what's different. It's because we're training like everybody else. We're doing the exact same things that everybody else is doing when we need to be training for what God has for us. It's a different thing. So who do you want your child to be? 
What do you want them to be? What do you want to train them in? What, do you, what qualities? What child? What's the legacy that you hope to carry on to your kids? What's the thing that when you're long gone, they can look back and not say, man, he made a lot of money. Man, he was the funniest guy. Man, he took care of our family. What is the legacy? What is the thing that you want them to carry? And I don't think that there's a better thing than saying that there's something greater out there than myself. It is Jesus. It's a legacy. And maybe you're like, I didn't come from a family of faith, first generation believer. I don't have that path marked out in front of me. How do I even begin to do that? You pray. You start by just praying, God, what? I've got this family. I've got this influence. What can this look like? And start to hold up what you have in light of God and say, what can you do with it? And make a plan. Make a vision for your family. Have a hope for them. In Habakkuk, it says, write the vision down that he who reads it might run. The goal is not read it and assess it and stand still. The goal is to read it and run to a place that you wouldn't run on your own. I think about uh, a guy that I named Bob Caldwell that was such an influence in my life. And he talked about this in his marriage. That he said he, he, in his marriage, he went from praying for his wife, Joy, in a way that he would say, early on in his marriage, he'd say, God, I, I want to be everything that Joy needs me to be today. And he said, he'd pray that every day. God, I want to be everything that Joy needs me to be for her today. And he says at one point that shifted and he started praying, God, help me to be everything you need me to be for Joy today. And while that sounds like such a small shift, what she needs me to be, what God needs to be, I think that's a massive shift when it comes to our intentions and our motives and our heart towards God and the people around us. What type of parent, what type of uncle, what type of grandparent, what type of son or daughter does God need you to be for the people around you? And maybe you're here and you take that to another level and that, that, that thought of, I don't have that path marked out in front of me and it's difficult because you don't have a point of reference. You'd look at your family and everybody has this to a certain extent, but you'd look at your family and you'd say, it's not the linear nuclear picture that most other people have. I've got this stepdad and these half siblings and this happened early on in our marriage and it changed things and I don't have this figure that everybody normally has. It's dysfunctional, it's broken, there's been divorce and remarriage and all these things. Pain and difficulty and all these things that you're maybe not even proud of. And first of all, the Bible says in Psalms that God is near to the brokenhearted. He loves the people that are hurting. And then you look at the Bible and you look at a, a guy like David who was the youngest of his brothers, dozen brothers, and he's the youngest one, wasn't even considered an option, and he's who God chose. Changing the trend of who's picked for king, and it's David, the youngest, the least of these, that's who God chooses to make matter in his kingdom. And then you look at David, and you're like, oh man, he had everything figured out. God called him a man after his own heart, and David was a guy who messed up royally slept with a woman who wasn't his wife, she got pregnant, this thing got ugly quick, and God still called him a man after his own heart. And it's wild. And then you look at a guy named Joseph, who Joseph was the favorite of his father, and his older brothers looked at him and said, this isn't gonna last, let's kill him. Super fun family dynamic, probably. Um, and they threw him in a pit, they ripped his, his jacket off, and they covered it in blood, and they sold him into slavery, and this was the better option to murder. So that's, that's their family dynamic. So hopefully that's a little bit better than yours. Um, that's Joseph's family dynamic. And he has one of the greatest stories in the Bible of redeeming 
your pain for brokenness. And what, one of my favorite pictures is, is if you don't know the story of Joseph, Joseph's brothers come to him. Joseph's been through the ringer. He's been thrown into jail. He's risen to power and thrown into jail. And then he's risen back into power. He's the second command in all of Egypt. And his brothers come to him. And when he confronts his brothers, he doesn't say, how dare you? He doesn't even just say, I forgive you. He says, it's God who sent me here. And he accepts his circumstances and says, it's for God's purpose that I'm here, not yours. Wild. And then you have Ruth. Ruth is uh, married to a man and her, his brother and his father all die and she's left with a widowed mother-in-law and a widowed sister-in-law. And in that day, that would have been a death sentence. That many people to take care of, nobody would have taken them in. And what you read in Ruth is that there's this story of redemption and goodness, even though there's brokenness. Incredible. And then you see Abraham, and Abraham's like the father of our faith. He's this big figure that you're like, man, he's, he's gotta have everything figured out. No, he screwed up too. God said he'd give him a son and then he, he didn't follow God's timeline and he went out and slept with someone else and got her pregnant. And I mean, just a mess. The Bible is full of people that are just a mess and their families are ugly and difficult and a challenge and not linear and not nuclear. But you know what? God used them. God's pattern is to showcase his goodness and his love in difficult circumstances through our weakness. So if that's your situation, I want to look at Psalm 145.4. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Maybe you have the opportunity for the first time in your generation to commend God's works to the next. In Exodus 20, God is giving Moses the, the Ten Commandments. And, and it's almost snuck in there, but in the middle of this Ten Commandments, there's this interesting phrase. This is what it says in Exodus 24 through 6. It says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or anything that's on earth or anything under the water of the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. You shall have no other idols but, but me, but for the Lord your God am a jealous God. And this is what I always remember, this phrase right here, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. That you can see this. There is a generational aspect to sin. There's people that have been hurt. There are people that have made bad decisions and sinned and done bad. And then you see the pain start to drop down in generations to the third and the fourth generation. Tyler and I looked at this earlier this week and we're like, man, you can see that in different family lineages. We see that in our families. But the phrase that comes after that is what makes it valuable. He says, but showing steadfast love to the thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commandments in comparison 250, 300-fold to the problem of sin is God's blessing. Dysfunction might be common, but it's not defining. Your, your dysfunction might feel isolating, and everybody's got this dysfunction, this ugliness, this unique character, this brokenness in their family, but it is not the one thing that will and can define your family. It doesn't have to be. So develop a vision for your family regardless of your starting point. I think about members of my family. One of my grandmothers was the first believer in her family. She did not have a good example set out in front of her. My mother got saved with her sister and her mother. She did not have, when she was in, in high school, she did not have a picture of what it looked like to be a godly mother. But I so appreciate a praying mother who loved God and was obedient. It, whatever your starting point is does not determine your future. What's your vision for your family? What's your vision for your family? 
So the second thing is train towards the goal. You train towards the goal. You have to figure out, I mean, for Michael Jordan, he'd been training towards baseball and he wanted to play basketball again. So he started training towards this goal. He wanted to be this person. So he started training towards it. One of my first jobs, I worked for a photographer and this photographer was probably the best I'd ever seen at walking into a room and he'd start talking to somebody and he'd walk back and I'd go, oh, who is that? How long did you know him? He'd go, I just met him. I'm like, holy cow. And he'd do that everywhere that he went. He would just meet people and be good at just meeting them and I, I had to ask him because I knew his dad well and worked for him for a while and I said like how did is that just like in your blood is that just who you are and he was like absolutely not he was as a kid it, it was to a certain extent but as a kid he said that his dad was involved in like some different groups and he would bring his son along and he'd go he'd, he'd meet them and then he'd tell his son and the son would come up and he'd tell him to do this he'd say hi my name is Stephen and he'd shake their hand and he'd go to the next person the dad would and he'd Step to the side and he'd go, hi, my name is Steven. He'd shake his hand. He said, I had to do that everywhere me and my dad went. Why? Because his dad had a vision for who he could become and he was giving him opportunity. He was modeling it for him and he did it consistently so that when he was old, he didn't depart from it. Now, we're not doing this with the idea of like hospitality or being sociable. We're doing this with the idea of the things that matter most, not just in our lives, but in the universe. So I wanna talk about those three things. Be consistent, set an example, and give them opportunity. The first thing after you set a vision is to be consistent. Parenting, being in a family is a marathon of opportunity, of ordinary opportunity. Very normal. The good thing about family is that you have these built-in traditions of we get together every Sunday, or we get together every Christmas, we get together every holiday. You, you just do these things and you have opportunity, but the problem is that that opportunity isn't always spectacular, and isn't always glorified. It's not always this like moment that's like, oh, this is gonna be a core memory. Sometimes these things are just very simple. But what if we get to set that example in a very consistent way? Ordinary, very regular. And I think about like, you're probably looking at your parenting, you're looking at your family and like, man, there's already so much failure. There's already so much difficulty. There's already so much like things that I'm not proud of. One of the things that I value as a son is when my father would come in and say, hey, I messed up. I'm sorry. I'm working on that. Will you forgive me? Oh man, it, it took things from like, is this, is this what my dad is to like, oh man, my dad's a person and he's growing and he's changing and I need to do this too. It's just ordinary, it's just regular. And we have opportunity to do this all the time, to just be consistent. It's wild how memory works where, where it's not like, you don't remember it while you can turn on a movie and watch everything. It's, it's random and it's just inserted randomly. So I don't want to be really great with my kids in a season where I'm not stressed and then be really terrible to my kids when I am stressed. I wanna be so consistent that I'm the same person with them regardless of how I'm doing at work, regardless of how things are going emotionally for me. I wanna be consistent with my kids because I don't know what they're gonna remember. I don't know what they're gonna hang on to for the rest of their life and say, that was my dad. Failure's gonna happen. Own it, apologize, grow. Take whatever steps necessary and stay committed to it, but be consistent. And one of the things that I think falls under this consistency umbrella is what gets put in with this a lot, and that's the idea of discipline. And I think we need to have discipline. Proverbs twenty-two fifteen says, folly is bound up in the heart of a child. 
There are kids in the room and some of you are dealing with the folly that is bound up in the heart of a child this moment. And I have a child in the room so I can probably hear my wife say amen somewhere. There, you don't have to teach a kid how to be silly. I told the first service, I normally walk from that door to that door with one or more of my children on a Sunday morning. And this is the first service. They're so kind. They're so patient. But my kids will, I'm walking right there and they take the most inefficient route. They're going underneath pews. They're going on top of pews. They're knocking over old ladies' purses. I mean, it happens. And I'm like, why, why are you doing this? Because folly's bound up in their hearts. One of the consistent themes in Proverbs is that there's different characters. And there's the wise person. There's the fool who just makes the bad choice. There's the mocker who looks at the wise thing to do and says, that's stupid. And then there's the child, the young person. They're not stupid. They're just young. They just don't have any experience yet. I can remember my dad telling me, you can either learn from my mistakes at no cost or learn from your own mistakes at a great cost. And I remember, I, 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 at a time, I probably just think that was in, went in one ear and out the other. But now I'm learning, okay, I, I can listen to, I can watch the people around me and learn from their mistakes, trust their wisdom and go, okay, there's validity to that. I should do that. Because it comes at great cost, that foolishness does. But it, it's just natural, it just happens and we need to learn out of it. But part of it is we need to discipline, we need to help them. I need to help my kids know what it looks like to put their shoes away when they get home. I need to help them understand what it looks like to not knock over an old lady's walker. It's just what I need to do as a parent. They don't learn those things on their own, they don't know their importance but we have to help them do it. We have to discipline them do it. And I think we have to marry that discipline with love. That Proverbs 15, 17 says, better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. Sometimes we can think that like, we wanna build up this life for our kids and we neglect the love of our kids. It has to be consistently both love and discipline, discipline and love. It has to be both, it has to be. Proverbs 1, 8 through 9 says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Forsake not your mother's teaching. Like, these are things we want you to know, remember. But the end of the verse says, For they are a graceful garland around your neck and pendants for your neck. Like, there's this attitude of, if I'm going to have to discipline you, it's going to be a blessing. You may not realize it in the moment, but it needs to be a blessing. And me as a father, there's a reason where in Ephesians 6, 4, it talks about how don't drive your children to anger. I just want them to do the right thing when I say do the right thing. But when I have that attitude, I'm not doing it as a blessing to them. I'm doing it out of, I want what I want and you need to submit. But if I can shift that towards, I want my discipline to be a blessing for you instead of a curse, they're gonna look back. It might not be right now. I can't tell you how many times we've said something as a discipline to our children and they've said something hurtful back, something that we didn't like back. But you know what? We're doing it with the end goal in mind, with the vision in mind, with their future person, with their well-adjusted, Jesus-loving adult self later on in life. That's who we're thinking of not the child. We're moving them towards a place where they wouldn't move on their own. It's both. It's a blessing. It's a love for them. And even in Jeremiah, I love the book of Jeremiah. It's 52 chapters of God just saying, hey, you screwed up. 
you're gonna deal with the consequences. And it is a heavy read and it's not always fun. And it's like, I'm gonna let these awful things happen to you over and over and over because you have walked away from me generation after generation and now I'm gonna let the shoe drop and this is what's gonna happen. But right in the middle of it, in Jeremiah 29, he stops and he's like, hey, even while you're dealing with this discipline, with this consequence, if you call for me, I'll be there. I won't be far from you. I want you to do well. That even in the midst of your pain, I want you to thrive. And then he says the verse that everybody knows that I have a future and I have a plan for you, great hope for you. That maybe you had a parent that was very strict and very difficult on discipline. Well, God is the father to the fatherless and he has a hope and a love for us that us as human fathers and human mothers and human parents and human family, we don't always do that right but we should strive to be consistent. The second thing, be consistent, and the second thing is to be an example. Show them, let them see those things in you. Do you serve God? Do you serve the people around you? Are you engaged in people knowing who you are and sharing life with them? Do you give? Do you sacrifice? Do you help the people that are around you? I mean, these are things that, I look at my parents, and my parents served in kids' ministry, for 40 years at their church. They still have. I'm gonna say that one more time. They served for 40 years in kids' ministry. I'm dealing with one week where kids are in the room and it's wild, right? They did this for 40 years. And I don't think they did it to just set an example for like, hey, this is what it looks like to serve. You don't do that in kids' ministry for 40 years. But I look back and I learn things. Again, memory doesn't work linear. I pick out random things when I went, oh man, they served in a really difficult season for our family. They served at a difficult time for our church. They served when things were bad financially. They They served all throughout and I got to watch that and it builds up a library of memories that we get to look at and go, man, I... I didn't realize it at the time, but that's what was going on in my, my parents' lives. That's what was going on in my church's life. That's what's going on in my sister. And they still, and, and it just builds up this library of memories of who God is and his faithfulness through their life. Are you setting an example for your kids? And the second piece to this one is, are you setting an example with the people that are around? Are you showing God to your kids with the people that are around your life. Now, you can't always pick your family, I get that, but are you choosing people that are coming in and showing, man, we've had our lives changed by God and you can too, with your friends, with your people that you're choosing to spend your time with. It's shaping. I remember there was probably eight years where my parents didn't know a thing in my head, okay? They knew stuff. But in my head, they were like, man, they just, they don't understand anything. If I have to help them set up AOL internet on their desktop one more time, I'm gonna go nuts. That they just didn't know anything in my head. In high school, they they were just the dumbest people in the world, but that's not true. But what helped is I'd go over to a parent's house and I go, man, Brad and Karen have a lot figured out. And it was like, yeah, that's why we wanted you to go hang out at their house with their son, because they were a good influence on you. You need a multitude of perspectives so that that library is not just you, it's everybody that's around. And that's why I am so thankful to live in a church, to be a part of a church. And some of those people were on stage right now, the people that care for my kids, that care for my family. I look at people, and there are people in this church that are not 
your actual mother, but have been your spiritual mother, have been your spiritual father, have been a spiritual influence, have been a spiritual family to you in a time of difficulty, in a time where you're a first generation believer and you don't know what it looks like to follow God, that someone stepped in and they can't be everything, but they can influence in that role and say, this is what it looks like to follow God and be a married man. This is what it looks like to follow God and be a father. I know you never had that. Can I be that for you and with you? And I'm so thankful for that. That's invaluable. Be consistent, be an example, and lastly, give them opportunity. Give them ownership and give them license. I remember when I got my license for the very first time, I felt like the most independent, free, fast and loose 16-year-old who drove to his grandmother's house ever, okay? No one had ever driven that 95 Oldsmobile as free as I did that day. But we have to look for, as silly as an example as that is, we have to look for opportunities to help give opportunity so that they can have ownership, so that they can say, this is something that I can do. And I remember we, uh, this is my wife's story, but this has impacted our family. Um, we, uh, my wife was driving, she saw, stopped at um, a stoplight and there was a guy holding up a piece of cardboard that had something written on it. And this was probably last summer. My son was probably four. And he said, mom, what's that person doing? And, and my wife kind of explained like, you know, he, he might be down on his luck and he, there's a chance he might be homeless and not have a place to live. And she kind of explained what that looked like. And she said, if he doesn't have a job, he's probably holding that to kind of ask for money or ask for food. And um, she explained that to him. And I'm glad she explained it because she's probably a lot more nurturing and, and helpful with that than I would have been. But she explained that to him. And my son's response was like, we have food and money. And I would have probably squashed it there <laughs> and told him all the reasons why we shouldn't. But my wife saw an opportunity to give him license and to give him reason. And she said, okay, yeah. So she went home and she got some gallon Ziploc bags and she got some toiletry items. She got some hot hands and some socks and she got some good stuff and she put it in there and she got some crackers and different things. And then she wrote a Bible verse on it and said, hey, you should know that you are loved by God. And she let my son write his name on it, whatever that looked like at four years old. And she zipped it up. And we kept them in our van for a long time. And to be honest, they kind of got in the way. And I got a little frustrated because they would sit in the van and get in the way. And we've got a bunch of kids. And, and, but then we would stop. And my son would, I was like, ooh, can I give that person a bag? Can I give that person a bag? And I remember one time my son got to meet somebody. And, and he gave him a bag. And he'd roll down the window in the backseat of our van. And he'd hand it to him. And we, we told him, like, hey, the follow-up question is, hey, what's your name? And how can I pray for you? And he asked this man, what's your name and how, I can, how can I pray for you? And th this guy said, my name's Max. And he, he started to share like, how can you pray for me? He goes, man, my backpack just got stolen. And you would have thought that Thatch had, my son had the plan of a century. When he got home, he's like, dad, we gotta go get Max a backpack. We're gonna go get him some stuff. We're gonna fill that backpack with whatever it was missing. And we're gonna go figure it out. Now, we made the attempt, Max was gone. By the time we met Max again, he had a backpack and I had everything figured out. But you know what I loved? My son had seen the consistency of my wife showing him what the love of God looked like. This is what God changes our hearts into. We've tried to model it, not perfectly, but we've tried to model what it looks like to love for God. And then we look for opportunity for him to go and do it. And the ownership that he took was challenging because I want him to look at life. I want him to look at people and I want him to look at God as I can make a difference in this. I can love in this. I can do this. 
And if the goal is a well-adjusted child that we're not the caretaker for, then we need to start changing into the role of coach and counselor and, and change that narrative. Look for opportunity for them. And if you don't have opportunity, pray for it. I love my parents. I have two parents that are so good. I'm so thankful for them. And I called my mom and said, hey, what's your quick advice? We're about to get off the phone. And she said, you got to pray. It's about all you can do. Man, there are so many times that as a parent, I'm like, I don't know what's coming next. I don't know what the answer is. I don't know what's, I don't know how to handle this thing that just happened or this thing that's coming up. And it leads you to just go, God, you know everything. And you, I, I need to be for him, for my boys, what you need for me to be. I can't be it on my own. Pray. Man, we need to pray. We need God. And lastly, I want to get to what's the child's response to all of this? Because a lot of this is like parent heavy, adult heavy. What's the child's response? And the good news is that everybody in this room is a child of someone. And what's the child's response? And I think you see it in Ephesians. And Ephesians is a book that Paul writes and Man, it's some of the best writing because it's really practical late in the book, but early in the book, he's like, man, this is, this is just what it looks like to have your life changed by God. And it's so transformative in the words, the picture that he uses that you were dead in your sin. You didn't have any hope. Dead things are dead. They're not gonna come to life on their own. And maybe your sin is failing in parenting. Maybe your sin is failing as a son or a daughter you feel like you have. Maybe your sin or something is something completely different, but it's so awful that you're like, man, I darkened the doors of a church today and I don't feel like I could ever say what I need to say and my family will never be what it needs to be. That's part of being dead. And it has these words that says, you're dead in your trespasses that you once walked. And, and it says, but God is rich in mercy because of the great love that he's loved us with. Even when we were dead, he made us alive together with Christ, reunited. By grace, you've been saved by faith, not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. The thing about a gift is that it's just, you either receive it, you accept it, or you don't. It doesn't matter what you brought to the table. So when he talks about family after this, it's in light of this person who says, I, I am standing here nothing, failure, dead. And God, I need your help. I cannot do this on my own. And this is what life looks like after God gives you that gift. In Ephesians 6, he talks about like, hey, this is what it looks like to be a worker and what it looks like to be a boss, that you shouldn't be domineering, that you should live this way. And he tells fathers, hey, don't provoke your children to anger. But the, when he talks to children, he says two things. He says, Ephesians 6, 1 and 2 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. Two commandments, obey and honor. Honor and obey. Obey and honor. And you look at those and you're like, okay, that's almost too simple. My, my, my mom is old. My, my parents are old. How do I obey and honor a woman in her 60s, a woman in her 70s, a woman in her 80s. How do, how do I do that to the people around me? I, I, the, Jesus did it all the time. And what's incredible is that Jesus was God incarnate. He was God walking on the earth. And he was walking, if you read John 2, he went to a wedding with his mother and his friends. And Jesus' mother elbows him. Jesus, they ran out of wine. And he's like, mom, my time hasn't come. Like, th this isn't it. And she doesn't answer him. She looks at the servant and says, hey, do what he says. 
And it's Jesus' first miracle. He's obeying and honoring his mother. There's a pattern, there's a history of it. And then you get to like 1 Timothy and it talks about how if there's a widow, before you go and just start taking care of them, their children should start to go and take care of them for this is what honors the Lord. That we have a responsibility and this is where it gets hard is like as you're aging, Parents, you have the the opportunity and the privilege to honor and obey them in helping them as they age. And we see that Jesus did this. In John 19, he's standing on the cross, he's nailed to the cross, and he's, he's saying to the disciples, right before he says, it's finished, he looks at his mother. And then he looks at John and he says, John, he probably didn't move his arm. He said, John, take care of my mom. Like there's this attitude of honor and respect, honor and obedience. And sometimes it's like, okay, how do I, my parents aren't believers. How do I start to share with them? How do I start to show them? Man, can can you show up and do their laundry? Can you clean the bathroom when you go home? Can you help them with their iPhone for the 1500th time? And honor them in it. Love them in it. College students, you know what's gonna be wild for your parents that you've been changed while you're at school is when you go back and you do the dishes, they're gonna wonder what God got a hold of your heart. They really are. A simple obedience will make someone wonder what has changed in you. Can we start to show this? Steve Jobs was adopted. And Steve Jobs, when he got older in life, he, he, he set out to meet his birth mother. And when someone asked him, why did you wanna meet your birth mother so badly? He said, I knew that she had options and choices and I wanted to thank her for having me. Even if you're in a situation where someone you feel like doesn't deserve it, they're not my parent, they haven't done anything for me. What if we honored them? What if we obeyed them? Not because of us, but in the Lord, because of what he is, because of who he is, because of how he's changed us. What if we love people that way? Will you bow your head? I wanna ask you a question. Has your life been changed by Jesus this way? Has your life been changed by Jesus where you are dead in your sin, there's nothing that's gonna bring you any hope, you've tried different things, has your life started to look dead? As you get older, as you figure out more things, as you have more responsibility, has life gotten better or worse? But this says, but God, who's rich in mercy, he's rich in forgiveness because of his great love for you. He died for you, cares for you, regardless of what you've done, regardless of what you bring in, regardless of the trash that you've done last night. He loves you, but God, but God, but God, and it's a free gift. And you could pray a simple prayer like this. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus. This is what I try to do every morning. I'm not perfect at it, but I try to just tell God, God, I need you. God, without you, I'm broken. I need you today. God, without you, I'm broken. I need you today. And if that is you, you can pray it right now and start to change the attitude of your heart. Let him sit on the throne of your heart. Let him be what the Bible calls your Lord, the person who is in charge. God, I'm broken, I need you. God, I'm broken, I need you.